Early in the Reformation, Martin Luther recognized the need for training of the local pastors in Saxony and other evangelical regions. Shortly after his return from the Warburg, Luther released his first version of the Winter Postal, over 400 pages of sermon ideas for new evangelical preachers. The Winter Postal of 1522 was the first of several iterations of sermon guidance to pastors, a project Luther would return to over and over again over the rest of his life. I'm Mike Yagley. And I'm Evan Gertner, and this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation, all of our nice cold beer. Okay, on to the postals. So the Winter Postals is um, published by Concordia Publishing House in the American edition of Luther's Works. Volume 75 is the first volume of the Church Postal, and we'll get into what is a Church Postal. And... At its fundamental, it's a help and aid to preachers. So, um, the, you know, let's give a little bit of context. Uh, in Luther's day, they used a one-year liturgical calendar, so they had the same readings every year. So each Sunday there are assigned readings, and the next year you would have the same assigned readings for that Sunday. So it's not like it's the same readings all year, but what we mean is that on Easter you always had this reading. On the first Sunday after Easter you always have that reading. How is that different than today? Today most churches that follow a liturgical calendar and have assigned readings use what's called a three-year lectionary, sometimes known as year A, year B, year C. Uh, some churches are going back to using the, now what's called the historic one-year lectionary. Uh, Mike and I both are at churches, separate congregations, but both that use the three-year lectionary. Right, right. Now, another big difference was that pastors, one of the big complaints Luther has, if you read through Luther, he's complaining about just the quality of the pastors that he that were out there. They had been brought up in the Roman Catholic system, which really required, it was, it was very, let's say, philosophical with a lot of very fine distinctions. And it was very difficult for these pastors to really know what they were preaching about. And so they... So you'd have on two poles. You'd have on one pole kind of that philosophical theologian that could have lots of conversation without saying much. And then on the other pole, you might have a pastor that was uh, very trained in the ritual of things but not really even what he was saying. Right. And so, so Luther looks at this and Luther goes, because Luther is now pr- pushing the word of God as being the foundation for the church. That the, no, Christ is the foundation, I should say. Christ no longer the ritual, no longer the hierarchy. The fundamental way the church is going to get nurtured is through the word of God. It's through the word of God. And so, so with this re- rebirth of the Word of God. as You might even call it a Reformation. <laughs> you might even call it a Reformation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's a good word. So even with this Reformation, uh, going back to the Word of God, um, Luther is, is, feels like, well, you know, he's got all these pastors that are teaching his people who, who need, to, need some help getting through their sermons. And so... Uh, what Luther is doing is he, the, you know, he puts together the 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 the, the postal. And the difference between a sermon and a postal, a postal is going to cover a portion of the church year, like the winter postal will cover the readings for Advent and Christmas and Epiphany, and then there might be a Lent postal that would cover the readings for Lent and Easter and that things. A postal, in one way, is a collection of sermons, but it's not 
necessarily a sermon you would preach. He's not advocating that a guy in rural Saxony pick up his postal and preach the sermon that he has in the first Sunday in Advent for the Epistle lesson. But instead, what he's going to do is give several ideas and, and directions a possible sermon could go. And in fact, the sermon for the first Sunday in Advent, it's 50 pages long. Yeah, just just one Sunday, the, 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 first, the first Sunday in Advent, you know, which we're covering today. Um, and, and the next day, and, and the, the day next after day. that. <laughs> yeah, it's going to go on for a while. Um, is 50 pages. And, and there's a lot of really good stuff in there. And as you follow with Luther through this commentary of the readings for the first Sunday in Advent, he wants you to gain a Lutheran lens. But he wouldn't have called it a Lutheran lens. He wasn't naming the church after himself. And he called it an evangelical lens, a lens of how to preach and share the gospel. So, that, yeah, there are two things that uh, Luther used the, litur- the, this, the, the postals for. Number one was to give Lutheran pastors of his era some help through the writing sermons. And then the second one was actually sort of a training where he's, he's bringing them and teaching them about Evangelical, what he called evangelical theology. It's the pattern and practice of how to read scripture and share it with others. Mike, I, as we do this and we look at the sermons of Luther, it's important to know that this was the most popular way that people got to know Luther. When I was doing my doctoral work, I had um, some correspondence, correspondence with Mary Jane Hemig, who was a professor at Luther Seminary, and she had done work on how Germany was transformed during the Reformation. And she wanted to understand what book, what treatise, what publication of Luther really was the tide turner that changed the life of a common person to have a sense of evangelical theology, not just being told to them, but now lives by her heart. And she looked at what books were published, what books were read, what books went into multiple publications. And what she learned was the most fundamental way that evangelical theology impacted Germany was through Luther's sermons. That, that is, you know, as we go through this, I mean, that's something that is out there when Luther wrote the postals, this is going out week after week after week after week. And so it makes sense. It, it, it might not be the biggest splash. It, it's not like, I don't know. Like the Babylonian captivity right. or the freedom on the treatise of a Christian. The, you know, all these books that uh, as a, a seminary student, I didn't read many Luther sermons. Oh, really? No. And, and yet it was later as I would try to say, you know what, I want to figure out what to preach. And I'd pull down uh, a part of Luther's works and say, well, how did Luther preach this? That's really when I was a preacher struggling to figure out, fe- feeling dried up and, and like I've exhausted my tool bag of sermons. And I looked at Luther's sermons. And one of the things I realized is his sermons don't ever depend on a trick. They don't ever depend on some sort of catchy hook. They're just simple, clear tellings of the gospel. And they are great. And, yeah. and you know, as we go through this, I hope everybody gets that out of this. Um, now, let's go back. So in 1521 and 1522, um, Luther received, re- released the, the, the Wartburg Postal. Well, that was like the first version. And it's known as the Wartburg Postal because it was largely produced while he was in the castle of the Wartburg, um, hiding as an outlaw, having been declared at... Uh, 
by the Emperor Charles V as an outlaw. His elector, Frederick of Saxony, hid Luther in the Wartburg. He takes on the name of Junker George. Uh, he dresses like a knight. And he writes a lot while he's there. And that's kind of his first publication because of, it's called the Warburg Post Oath because it's where he wrote it from. So that's going on. And then Luther puts that out. What we'll be covering today, which is the first Sunday in Advent, comes from that Warburg Postal. And then what happens after that is in 1525, Luther released additional sermons for Lent, and those were added to the Warburg Postal which the whole thing together is called the Winter Postal. Um, he was pretty happy with that. Uh, and at, I think at one point in his, you know, the, during a table talk, Luther, a lot of things Luther just said sitting around the table drinking beer was captured by people. And one of the things he said was that this was uh, one of the best books he ever wrote. So, and just like you said, it, it was one of the, if not, it was probably the most impactful book and while Luther is publishing this winter postal, there's a man by the name of Stephen Roth, and he volunteered to put together the summer postal for Luther from notes he had taken during Luther's sermons in Wittenberg. So while the winter postal is largely Luther's kind of long preparations of how to read Romans 15 or how to read a passage, uh, Stephen Roth listens to Luther's sermons and then writes down what Luther's sermon was. And the summer postal that Stephen Roth publishes ends up uh, having kind of a different voice to it. And Stephen Roth is not a theologian. He's more of a school teacher. And sometimes he might misrepresent Luther's theological concepts. And the reality is that the oral word that Luther preaches in the pulpit versus something that he edits and sculpts and crafts is going to be different. There was a second, uh, a second one, which is, you know, uh, the, there were no write-ups for the summer postals. And so all they had was Stephen Roth's stuff. And, and so pastors were stuck in the, in the summer period to go to Stephen Roth's postals rather than Luther's postals. But Roth presented them as Luther's postals, and they were sold that way, and they were very popular. Um, but uh, but that's, you know, that, was, uh, that was one of the big problems, was that it, it, it propagated. It sold well. It sold so well that Luther... Uh, Stephen Roth then published a festival postal, which was the first postal for the entire year that included all the church festival days. But that's where kind of things go off the rails. Uh, there were several festivals that Luther had never, as we know, preached on. But there are sermons that are supposedly from Luther in Roth's summer postal. No problem. Postal. Yeah, no problem, right? <laughs> no problem for Roth. How does he do this, Mike? If Luther never preached that, how does he publish a Luther sermon from that festival? From a lot of, he's pulling from a lot of different places. First, he's, he's pulling from uh, contact, uh, content from Bugenhagen, which was Luther was the standard preacher in He Wittenberg. was the city church pastor in Wittenberg. So he might copy a sermon that Bugenhagen preached instead of one from Luther. But then he published it. With the that application is, that it was Luther's. Yeah, he'd say it was Luther. Another thing is, uh, he might make stuff up. He might go and pull out stuff from Luther's lectures on Galatians. He'd find stuff. Oh, we're talking about this. Here, Luther said this in class. He said this here. He said that there. And he sort of. So Roth created something. a sermon for St. Andrew's Festival 
that's not something Luther preached, but it's kind of cribbed from the notes from Luther's lecture on Galatians. He also got material from Philip Melanchthon for the sermon on the festival of St. Philip and James. And, and one of the things, at least the scholars that I read, they'd go and look, and they couldn't figure out where he pulled this from. And so, you know, it's possible he just made it up. And Roth is making money by publishing these summer and festival apostles. They sold great, so he kept going. And in 1528, he created a new compact version of Luther's Winter Postal. Now, Luther's Winter Postal is the one that Luther himself wrote and edited and made sure it was right. And Luther is approached uh, with the copy that Stephen Roth had written, and he's asked to write a preface for it. As he's having some dinner with friends, they gave him a copy of Roth's new compacted, more simple winter postal. And as Luther's thumbing through it, he gets enraged. Yeah, he, he just sort of, you know, these guys get together. They're trying to get Luther to write the preface. To, to give, put his stamp of approval on this compact winter postal. Luther explodes. He's just furious. And he's like, why are we putting out something when I put out something already that was better, more thorough? And why are we going to do something like this? And they, they calmed him down and they were able to get him to write the preface. He actually did end up writing the preface for that one. And he did say, okay, this is... They, they convinced him that it was needed, that it was, you know, people didn't... The, the, there's a market for there's it. There's a market for it. And he said, okay, fine. And he put together a preface. And he was actually pretty gracious in the preface, where he's like, okay, um, this is great, great work, blah, blah. And he's going on about how good it is. Shortly after that... Behind the scenes. Behind the scenes. Again, Roth is making a lot of money here. Word gets out that Roth is making the money. Those guys which I think were Melanchthon and a few others who were supporting Roth, found out he's making money, and then they pulled their support. And so between 1528 and 1535, Luther decides to spend more time editing his own copy of the Winter Postal. In 1532, he publishes an edited, updated version of the Winter Postal, and he asks that all of Roth's versions get eradicated. He pulls them from publication. He asks booksellers to not sell them. This doesn't happen because most because Roth's postals are the ones that are available and booksellers are able to sell them. So they're not going to pull them from the market, even though Luther's asking. And a lot of the times, that's all that's available. You know, these, these past, there's a demand for them. You know, we have, you know, these pastors are out there. They need to give a sermon for the festival of St. Peter or whatever, you know, and, 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 and they don't have anything. So they look to, all they have is, is Roth's postal. So Luther, realizing he doesn't have the power to convince the booksellers to eradicate Roth's books from the shelves. He then says, then we need to publish something different as a competitor. So he asks Casper Krusiger to rewrite all the postals to help clear up confusion caused by Roth. Casper Krusiger is known as kind of the guy that's keeping track of Luther's lectures. He's the one that is largely the note taker for a lot of what Luther's doing. Luther has confidence that Casper knows Luther's voice. So Krusiger, and this is something after we get done with the postals, we're probably going to be taking a look at, at uh, Luther's sermons on John chapter 14 through 16. This is the Upper Room Discourse. Krusiger actually wrote that and, that, and Luther was so impressed with it 
that he would be found stealing away with a copy of that as his own personal Bible study, as his own personal devotion. And so, so Luther really liked what Krusinger did. And those notes of Luther's sermon for John, that's found in Luther's works, American Edition, Volume 24. So we have two copies of postals that are now in publication in the 16th century. You have Roth's, which largely capture the oral character of Luther's preaching, but don't have the um, edited character of a postal that was meant to be a large resource. Then you have Krusiger's versions that largely capture what Luther meant and how Luther wanted the postal to function as a, a teaching tool. Luther wasn't expecting people to just grab his sermons and preach them. He wanted people to become students of the word, and he thought Krusiger did a much better job developing that. So you have these two different versions over the course of the 1500s and into the 1600s. Really, the interest in as as the as um, uh, seminaries improved, as teaching of pastors improved, the interest in the postals dropped to where really nobody was paying attention to them. People kind of lost the editorial history of them, and by the 1700s, there's interested. There are people who are interested again in the postals. So at that point, people go in and they're looking at, at what was done and they, there's this, it's almost like the great man theory. You know, they're more interested in what Luther did himself, what he said himself. And they weren't interested. If they, if Krusiger did it, they were like, ah, oh, that's worse. They that's, thought, thought Krusiger sounded too fancy. It didn't sound like the man. Right. And so, so what you ended up with was when they looked at this body of work, both the Roths, first you have Luther's own postals, you have Roth's postals, you have Krusiger's postals. Well, they would look at, 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 at Luther's postals and say, okay, that's, that's good stuff. Roth was actually because he was taking notes of what Luther actually said. They said, okay, that's, that's also really, really good. And the Krusiger stuff, oh, that's garbage. And so you end up with the, the elevation again of the Roth postals. That after and, Luther had put so much work into killing them off. <laughs> and so from the 1700s to the early 1900s, Caspar Krusiger's work was pushed down as not authentic while Roth was elevated. Then modern scholars are now seeing Luther as a part of a team of theologians that include Krusiger, and they've brought back Krusiger's work as the latest translation. So the introduction to volume 75 has quite a bit of history of this editorial work and how they came to use this um, work by Krusiger as their main resource. And they talk about how you can look at many versions of Luther's works and do quite a comparison of the editorial work that moves from Luther to Ross to Krusiger. And then they also talk in the introduction about Bible references and how Luther will reference passages of the Bible. Luther will often reference um, in his 1522, the earlier versions, the um, Latin Vulgate. So I think right now is a real good time for a beer break. Yeah, tell us about our beer. So uh, for today, we're having something from the brewery called Catch Me If You Can. This is a bourbon barrel-aged imperial stout brewed with molasses, with ginger, graham cracker, and spices. And I'll, I'll tell you, you know, the first... First of all, when you pour this stuff... What does it look like? It looks like motor oil with a, a cream head. Like, like 
old motor oil. <laughs> yeah. It's so thick. So thick. It's an, an imperial stout. Uh, did you already say that strength is like 10.5% yeah, ABV? Well, this is certainly a sipping beer. And uh, so uh, when Mike and I record this, uh, we've got a can. We pour it into two separate uh, glasses and... Uh, sometimes as we are recording and we get to the beer break, we have both finished our beer by the time we get to the beer break. But that hasn't happened this time. There's no way to drink this beer fast. Oh, no. no. Nor should it be. There's a lot of flavor and uh, there's a lot of texture on the tongue as it changes. Um, the, the, The strength of it being that bourbon flavored and then the sweetness of the ginger and the gingerbread kind of come afterwards. There's a complexity to it's it. It's very complex. And and I'll tell you, the first, I, I actually took a, 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 when I when I put it in the glass and I put it to my mouth and I took a breath in through my mouth and my nose just to get, a, and oh my goodness, it it almost burned my throat. <laughs> so it's, it's so there, as a part of the flavors, the brewer has said he has put cinnamon, allspice, clove, and nutmeg along with graham crackers to try to capture that rich sweetness of fresh gingerbread cookie. Yeah, when we this is a it's one of those beers that the first sip I didn't like it that much. Mm-hmm. It was it was too thick maybe. Too thick, too strong, but as we're working our way through it, it it sort of grows on you. It's uh, at least for me. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm enjoying. So it a more. guy on beeradvocate.com in his review of the beer says it is uh, thick and chewy. That's right. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Not often do you describe a beer as chewy, <laughs> but I do think it's applicable for this beer. So, uh, cheers to you, Mike. Cheers. Okay. Mike, you were talking about that school of theologians that are kind of centered in Wittenberg and that reminder that Luther doesn't operate on his own. For anyone that's interested in some kind of additional reading on that idea of a school of theologians, Robert Kolb has written a book, Martin Luther and the Enduring Word of God, The Wittenberg School and its Scripture-Centered Proclamation. And it's kind of... Uh, it reads a little bit like a, a biography of the different theologians that work together, how they would edit, how they would revise, how they would bounce ideas off of each other. And it becomes fundamental to our image of Luther that he wasn't a man that was isolated. He wanted to work within the communion of saints. That is, yeah. And it's, uh, and that was so important to keep the, the movement going after he died. But let's... Let's keep going here. All right, so we've described kind of the editorial story here, kind of helping you to untangle confusion surrounding the postals. Now we're going to actually move on to the postal, and it starts with an introduction, and he writes the introduction as um, a note to the noble that he is writing it to. Um, So He calls it a short instruction, doesn't he, or something like that? He says, To the noble, illustrious Lord Albert, Count of Mansfield, Lord of Schrappeln, and Heldrugen, etc., my gracious Lord, from Martin Luther. And then he writes uh, just an introduction that talks about uh, how Christ uh, is exalted as a servant to all, and we should all be servants to Scripture. And then the next thing that happens in the book is a short instruction, and it's titled, What Should Be Sought? and expected in the Gospels. And this is kind of more the introduction of what you were talking about. And that's uh, in the Luther's editions, page 7 to page 12. Uh, But within these five pages, he does a great job just defining what the word gospel 
means. So we're going to spend a little time just in that short instruction to bring everybody up to speed. Because like, like Evan said, it's a great way to approach uh, uh, the gospel. It's a great way to approach epistle, anything in, 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 in the Bible. So when you ask someone, what is a gospel? He says, now people will have heard the word gospel and they'll think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in Luther's mind, that's not what he means by the word gospel. Anything that, that proclaims the life, death, resurrection, and glorification of Christ is the gospel, according and, to Luther. And what I love about this is he keeps the gospel, the good news of the forgiveness of sins, rooted in the telling of Jesus. As we tell people about the life, death, resurrection, and glorification of Jesus, they're going to receive the forgiveness of sins. And here's the risk. Today, in modern times, people are not literate in the Bible, and they hear about the love of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, and it becomes unmoored from the scriptures itself. And it is important for us to keep it centered in what the scriptures themselves say. So Luther uses the example of uh, Paul's opening to Romans as an example of pure gospel. And he said, just let's read through it real quick. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, all of that, according to Luther, all of St. Paul's writing, and especially this, is, is constantly referencing Christ's life, death, resurrection, and glorification. So are all pure, pure gospel. gospel. And, and the beauty of this focus back to Paul is why he can talk about the epistles. If it's a, an illustration of what the gospel means, and then the first sermon he has in here is from the epistle, he needs to explain why you can preach from Romans. Why you can preach from any text in the Bible that's not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. A preacher can use a text other than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and still preach the gospel. Because the gospel is the telling of the life, death, resurrection, and glorification of Jesus. So as the second thing, so that was the first thing that he's worried about in that short introduction, that short instruction, is that... You know, everybody just wants to just look at the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there's way more gospel to talk about than just those four. The second thing that Luther wants to really highlight is that people in that era and even today want to make Christ first and foremost into an example. A new lawgiver. A new lawgiver. And, and so you, you don't need, we don't need a new Moses. And he even says that, right? Christ is not a new Moses. Right, right. So I'm going to take a quote here. The main point and basis of the gospel is that before you grasp Christ as an example, you first receive and apprehend him as a gift and present given to you by God to be your own. When you see or hear that he has done something or suffered something, do not doubt that Christ himself with his doing and suffering is yours. You can rely on him no less than if you had done it indeed as if you were Christ. This is a very strong statement. And it starts to show the structure of his sermons is going to be deliver the promise and equip people to live as an example rather than the give people an example and then hope that finally they hear about Jesus. One of the big problems with, um, I've, I've been in part of many churches over the years and I've seen lots of efforts to sort of rejuvenate the church 
by getting people wound up and excited about going out and serving the community. But to do that without first proclaiming Christ as their savior, it becomes a burden, becomes a burden and it'll burn people out. How do you stop people from getting burned out in a church? Luther's going to say you do it by making sure everything they do is built on the promise of Christ. And that, that all the work they do is out of joy. So, so this is going to set up the format for Luther's approach to the postals. He'll often start with a section of grace and faith. Then he'll go over the exact same section, but now the example Christ gives to us. Now, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes he's going to go through a third section where he calls it the secret meaning. And, and this is sort of a weird sort of thing in our world, right? We, this is where the, it's allegorical meaning. You know, Luther will go through and pick out allegory um, in, in, in a gospel reading, for example. And we'll be, go, we'll be going through that as we're going to be true to the, to, to the postal. So we will be touching on this stuff. He even does that allegorical reading in the word of introduction to Count of Mansfield, where he talks about... Uh, David's youngest son being the one who becomes the king. Uh, Christ is the servant the, that is youngest to all of us. We are old in our sin, but he comes new as a creation, and he's the one that becomes the king. And he says to you, Count of Mansfield, you're the youngest in your family, but to you now I give this word, and it's appropriate I give it to you, the youngest. And that, that idea of taking that word youngest and moving it as an allegory from David to Solomon to Jesus to Mansfield to all of us, and that we all are going to be servants of the word. That's what we kind of mean by an allegorical reading. You take kind of a word and you 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 pivot uh, a, a theological point on that word. Um, an example of this would be like the Mount of Olives. Yeah, uh, the Mount of Olives becomes symbolic for the grace of God, and in the Old Testament, olives were used as a way to represent God's grace flowing upon people. Yeah, they, they're anointed with oil, their uh, cup overflows, yep. and how as we, we are anointed with oil and our cup overflows, as Jesus does ministry at the Mount of Olives, we should expect the love of God overflowing at the Mount of Olives. So it's not surprising then that it's at the Mount of Olives around the Garden of Gethsemane that uh, he's going to get arrested because his grace is overflowing in that moment. So taking Mount of Olives, grace that overflows, connected to the anointing of oil that happens in the Old Testament, that's kind of what Luther does sometimes as a secret meaning of the text. And so we'll be going through that. Now, Luther was actually one of the first, this was very popular, for mold. their early church, that's the fundamental way they preach was allegorical. And it wasn't until uh, kind of the, the time of the scholastics, St. Thomas of Aquinas and things like that, that, that started falling out of favor. And, and Luther actually was one of the strongest who said, this has got to stop. You know, this is because there was all sorts of terrible teachings that people were just making up out of, oh, you take this one word, put it over here, this... And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa! No, you have to ground your, you have to ground it in the teachings of the Bible. So Luther doesn't have a problem with allegory, as as um, as an illustrative, as something to help people remember uh, something. And, and, but he doesn't want to use it as a way to create new doctrines right. or new uh, requirements or new obligations on people. So. Luther's postal is excellent for a way of how to preach and use allegory in a way that's instructive and, and not detrimental to quality preaching. Well, that covers the, <laughs> that covers the background 
and the introduction to the winter postal and also the that opening section that gives an overview of the winter of the postals um, so now the first sermon that Luther is going to write about um, he doesn't just randomly pick a Bible passage he picks the Bible passage that's the epistle lesson for the first Sunday in Advent and he's going to work through the the winter epistles and the winter gospels and it's a reminder to me that as a preacher, you preach the text that's given and trust that God's word is going to work through it. So this is a relatively short reading, um, the, the first Sunday in Advent, and I don't think we're really going to get started on it. Because no, yeah, I think you're right. I was, I was just about to go get a Bible and read for us Romans 13, 11 through 14. Uh, we're at about 32 minutes into this passage. We want to let you now kind of this pattern we're going to use as we work through Luther's Postal. Yeah, because what we have here, like we mentioned, is we have 400 and some pages to go through. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take our time and we're just going to cut ourselves off at thir- between somewhere between 30, 40 minutes and whatever makes sense at that point, And then we'll pick it up next time. And so today we have introduced the concept of a postal. We've placed it into its kind of publication schedule and how Luther and Roth and Kruziger and that debate about what is Luther's voice. Is it the, the sermon that's preached? Is it the sermon that's written? What was the goal of a postal? Then we started to look at how Luther defines the word gospel. And how he roots that word in the gospel is the promises that are given to us in Christ Jesus. And just as we're about to now get into the first text, the first sermon, that's about 50 pages long in Romans 13, 11 through 14, we think it's fair rather than rush it. We don't want to rush through 50 pages. We're going to stop. And the next time we come back, we're going to pick up and kind of dissect how does Luther look at a passage? How does he define the gospel? How does he illustrate the examples that are given? How does he talk about allegory? And in all of this, we hope that you don't hear a sermon from Luther as much as you hear how Luther examined the scriptures. So one of the great things that we're going to see here, though, is 50 pages. 50 pages on three verses. (laughs) This This is really rich. This particular... This, and he doesn't go, as we go through this, um, we're going to see that not every reading is as, as, as full of, of, uh, of the proclamation of Christ as these three verses are. But Luther is going to walk us through this and we're going to really enjoy Luther's reading of, of these three verses. Romans 13, 11 through 14. All right. Mike, thank you so much for gathering with me. This beer that you brought is outstanding. Uh, It reminds me of gingerbread cookies, which is great. Imagine someone as they're getting to read a sermon on the first Sunday in Advent and eating a Christmas cookie. (laughs) Very good. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.